Support for Innovation Hub comes from Mimecast. Nearly 30,000 companies worldwide use Mimecast to help prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, phishing, and impersonation attacks. Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. Mimecast.com. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Many people wrestle with a kind of paradox. They feel like they're working harder than they ever have, but it's also harder to get ahead. So I'm going to add to that a data paradox. Americans are working, on average, pretty much exactly as many hours in a given week, just about 40 hours, actually, as they did 40 years ago. So that hasn't changed. What has changed is how many weeks a year we work. It's almost four more weeks than in the late 70s. And if you're in the bottom 20% of income earners, it's more like six weeks a year. Now, one tricky thing is that those are averages. So while some individual people are indeed working more, a lot of what's happened is that women have entered the workforce or they have ramped up to full time in huge numbers. And that has bumped up the number of work weeks for the average American. But no matter how you slice it, many people have less time for leisure, less time to spend with people in their family, less time to take care of their families. Julie Rose is an assistant professor of government at Dartmouth College who makes a controversial argument We should all have a right, a right to free time. If that seems too luxurious, Rose argues, you'd be surprised at how it could make both you and your community better. But before we get to her argument, we asked a few people around Penn Station in Baltimore if you had one more hour a day to do whatever you wanted, what would you do? I would get more rest. I would sleep more. Definitely sleep more. Well, I'm from New York City, so and I work very hard all day long, like 10 to 12 hours a day. So I would take the time to take a nice long walk and explore my beautiful city of Manhattan. I work so much, I will go to sleep. I will go home and get in the bed and sleep for an hour. I would definitely, if I could have an hour dedicated to just yoga within my daily routine, that'd be fantastic. Julie Rose is the author of the new book, Free Time, and she argues that giving people rights without giving people time is like giving them nothing. And that's true of lots of our rights. When you find yourself without time or money, real participation in a society can be virtually impossible. So say, to take a simple example, you have the right to vote. Um, In order to actually meaningfully have the right to vote, you have to have the means to to make use of that right. So you'd need to have say, a way to get to the polls, either with a bus ticket or with gas money. And so if you didn't actually have those means, we wouldn't think that you really had that right to vote. It would be in name only. Mm. And so that point is really widely recognized and is part of why liberal democratic societies generally hold that we have some entitlement to a decent amount of income. Because otherwise, if we were living in poverty so that we couldn't actually make use of any of our, our formally guaranteed freedoms they wouldn't be very valuable to us. Our citizenship would be somewhat empty. And so that point is normally recognized about money, but I think it holds just the same to time. So if we take the same example about uh, the right to vote, in order to vote, you also need the time to go to the polls. And so if you had to work all day and if the polls required standing in line in your area, your right to vote might similarly be meaningless or empty if Mm. you didn't have the time to do it. And I think that this simple point, uh, which is, we can see with the example of voting, applies more generally. So any of the things that we're formally free to do require time in order to actually do them. So you need time to practice your religion. You need time to associate with others. You need time to participate in politics. 
And if any of those things are going to be real freedoms that we possess, we have to have the resource to do so. And those resources aren't just money. They're also time. What does it do, if anything, does free time make you a better person? Does it make you a better worker? Are there things that we know about what free time just does for you as an individual? Mm -hmm. So in some respects, I think it certainly does. There's plenty of evidence that having more free time makes us more productive, or at least up to a point, um, and that it's certainly plenty of evidence that it also makes us healthier, both having better physical and mental health. But I think the thing I'd really want to put the emphasis on is that What's important about free time is that it allows us to do the things that we want to do. Uh, And so in this, I take some inspiration from this, from this late 19th century labor slogan that people were entitled to eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, and then importantly, eight hours for what we will. So the idea here is that it's important that we have time just to devote to our pursuits, whatever they are, however we choose to spend them. So it might be the case that we do choose to do things that are more productive or healthier, but I think the central idea is that we would lead more fulfilled lives doing more of the things that we wish to do. Hmm. So it sounds like it doesn't matter what you do with your free time. You're still entitled to it. You can watch soap operas during that free time. <laughs> you can read books. You can go for a walk. You know, you can eat Funyuns. It's all okay. It's all free time. I think that's right. That is the core of my view. Uh, One thing I would say, so some people might push back at this point and think, oh, no, like now we're going to be guaranteeing free time to everyone and they're just going to be watching television. And you hear this kind of refrain um, commonly. One thing I would say if if people wanted some reassurance on this front is that we shouldn't necessarily expect that what people do in their leisure time today is what they would do if we had a fair distribution of free time more broadly. So if you work really long hours, when you come home, most of the time you're just exhausted. And it's perfectly understandable that people would just want to watch TV or play video games. But if people were working shorter hours so that they had they weren't exhausted at the end of the day, they had more time that they could really plan and use uh, for different types of activities, I think that we might see people... Uh, doing more creative, innovative things or spending more time with family or in in types of activities that people would want to see people doing more of. Um, Of course, just, you know, to reiterate, on my view, of course, people can use it however they wish. And so if, if, you know, if television watching is really what you love and, you know, in this era of peak TV, like that's a highly understandable preference, um, you know, they could go ahead and do that. But we also should think that maybe people would use their time in some other ways as well, if they possessed it under different conditions so that we weren't all exhausted. Right. You do something differently maybe um, when you think there's a, a lack of it and you get a little bit of it than if you know, well, that's okay. There's a steady supply coming. Yeah, exactly. And you right, could make right. plans. Yeah. Right. We talked earlier about society benefiting when people have time to vote. Can you think of another example in which uh, society benefits by a large number of people just having more free time on their hands? For sure. So under the current regime, most jobs come in this standard package. You can have the job for these hours. And given those choices and combined with the pressures of social norms, more women than men choose not to take the job and to do the caregiving instead. And instead, if we were to say, no, well, instead of only having the job on the standard package, you could take, say, 60% time for 60% pay, 
we might observe that more women decide to stay in the workplace so they mm. could still do some caregiving. And also importantly, some men might think that looks like a great deal too, and they would also take the option and they would do more caregiving. And so we might have more gender equality in both work and caregiving if people were able to combine work and care in the way that they prefer rather than just having a standard work package. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Julie Rose, author of the book Free Time. She's an assistant professor of government at Dartmouth. What kinds of incentives, uh, what kind of policy do you think should be enacted so that people can actually have some free time in their lives? And this could be on the low end of the income scale. It could be on the high end. So, of course, in the background, we'd have to make sure that the income distribution was such that everyone could earn a decent living while also having free time. So that those kinds of familiar policies having to do with minimum wage or the earned income tax credit, those kinds of things would have to be in the background. But setting that aside to focus specifically on the time dimension, I think the single most important policy we could have that would apply across the board would be a right to not work more than a maximum number of hours. What do you think that maximum should be? I think we could probably set it at, say, 35 hours per week, but I think it should be a matter of democratic choice. I think it's important that our society chooses intentionally how much time it wants everyone to have access to and how we should weigh socially the value of more time against increased economic growth, because that's really what it comes down to. And as it is right now, this is left to individuals who are usually making constrained choices because they don't actually have these real options. And instead, I think we should make it a social choice together that's intentionally made. So I would say, let's try 35 hours. But again, this could be a matter of democratic choice. Mm -hmm. Okay, 35 hours. So that's people working, let's say, nine to four every day. Mm -hmm. And then would they have the opportunity if they wanted to, to work till five or six, let's say, for more money? Yeah, exactly. So I think that ideally it should be a right to n not work longer, but with the option to work longer if you want to. Uh, partly that's because I think one of the values of free time or the central value of free time is that it's time when we get to choose what we want to do. And so some people might want to keep working either because they really enjoy it or because they want the additional money. So to the extent that it's possible, we should allow people to make that choice either by working longer hours at their job or by doing another job, say moonlighting or doing some kind of entrepreneurial work on the side or something like that. But it's important, though, that we are careful about this because it's possible that in some industries, the social norms and the competitive pressures right. are such that almost everyone would start taking that option. And then if you wanted to be the one who said, no, really, I want to leave it for, mm -hmm. you wouldn't actually be able to choose that. And so if in certain industries that dynamic started to play out, then I think we would be justified in having a stricter maximum hours law where you actually aren't permitted to work longer than the specified number of hours, at least in that job. You could still work for additional money in another job, but not such that you're denying your fellow employees their right to free time. I wonder um, what the response to this book has been and whether you think we are moving towards having, you know, potentially tr actually trying to ensure that there's more free time in the U.S. I mean, I don't know, at the state level, at the city level, at the federal level. You just give me a sense of 
like what you're hearing? Mm-hmm. I think one of the main responses and one that I'm encouraged by is the longer term picture. So in the short term, the immediate policy debates are not necessarily encouraging uh, as we're focusing on other things. But over the longer term, there's a question about how we should respond to automation and seeing that as an opportunity to provide more free time and not to just plow the increased productivity back into increased economic growth. That won't happen automatically. And in order for that free time to actually be increased and for it to actually be shared fairly across society, it has to be done in an intentional way through policy. You know, when you talk about uh, the increase in automation, maybe freeing up more of our time, if you go back decades, 50 years ago, uh, you will see people writing about these questions of, what are we going to do with all this free time? Like, <laughs> we have all this new technology, dishwashers, microwaves, like our food is going to be done so quickly and our household chores are going to be done so quickly. And and there was automation starting to come into factories. Like, what are we going to do with all this time? And I don't think that people in 2017 think, boy, that sure panned out. I, I don't know what to do all, with all this free time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it's terribly sad, really, to be reading uh, the things from the early part of the 20th century and the middle of the 20th century when people thought, oh, we're just going to have this glut of free time. We're going right. to have too much leisure and the problem will be we won't know how to use it. And in fact, you can read all these things that thought, oh, it will mean that the real problem is education so that people can use all this abundant time well. And of course, none of this has come true. On the one hand, that gives us some grounds for pessimism and to think that people are, some people think automation is going to automatically lead to this increased amount of free time. And I just don't think that that's True, we can't assume that that's going to happen because of the kind of evidence we have from the past where these predictions were made and didn't come true. But because we have these predictions that were made in the past and then didn't come true throughout the 20th century, we can use that and point to that and say, well, if we actually want this to happen, we have to do it intentionally. Mm. We can't just allow it to happen and assume that it's going to happen organically because it won't. New consumer demands will arise and new jobs will be created to meet those demands. But we might choose, you know, we'd rather not have that expansion in consumer demand um, 100 percent. We'd at least like to take some portion of this increased uh, time and actually keep it and hold on to it. Julie Rose is an assistant professor of government at Dartmouth College. She's author of the book Free Time. Julie, thank you so much. Thank you. If you liked this segment and you want to hear more like it, check out our website, innovationhub.org. We've got interviews there about everything from how Barbara Streisand upended Hollywood to why empathy is not always a good thing. 